Dimensional stabilizer. Right. The doctor and Zoe were blathering on about another of the TARDIS gizmos. I didn't understand half of what they said, but I wasn't going to tell them that. The doctor, of course, wasn't fooled for a moment. Now, Zoe, I, I don't think Jamie is that interested in all these gadgets. But Zoe wasn't that kind. Oh, she's a, a nice enough lassie, but she does like to show off. It's simple, Jamie, she lectured, once you've grasped the basics. She held out the dimensional whatnot. It looked like the wee glass thing the doctor called an egg timer, except it was covered with coils of wire and a red light flashed somewhere inside. This is one of the most important TARDIS components, she explained. It stabilizes the dimension which contains the TARDIS interior. I took the thing and turned it over in my hand. You mean this allows the inside to be bigger than the outside? Then should it not be plugged into the console somewhere? Oh, that's a spare, said Zoe. Then her eyes opened wide in sudden panic and she turned to the doctor. That is a spare, isn't it, doctor? Uh, yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, Zoe, uh, we're perfectly safe. Why, I'd, I'd hate to think what would happen if we removed the functioning stabilizer. Now then, uh, it looks like we're landing somewhere. The doctor scampered round the console, checking the instruments. Uh, interesting. The atmosphere outside is breathable, but only in the local vicinity. No radiation, reasonable gravity. He tapped a meter, watching its needle. Again, only in the local vicinity. How curious. Gravity beyond this immediate area is, well, not different. The sleeves of the doctor's tailcoat were a little too long, but he, he managed to rub his fingertips together, grinning like a wee bairn with a new toy. He waved a baggy sleeve towards the door. Wherever we are, it should be interesting. <laughs> Shall we? Oh, it's a corridor, Doctor. Again? Yes, Jamie. The TARDIS does seem to have a predisposition. I wonder if there's a corridor setting switched on somewhere in these subroutines. So he joined us, shutting the TARDIS door behind her. An odd sort of corridor, though, she said, glancing around. The walls are concertinaed like they're flexible. What do you suppose are behind all these double doors? Well, I could think of a quicker way to find out than listening to Zoe's supposing. Ah, yes, Jamie. Ever the pragmatist. A huge room spread out and downwards in front of us. Rows of empty seats with wee desks attached, sloping down to a huge screen where diagrams and a messy scroll of numbers were displayed. Zoe was impressed. It's our lecture theatre, Doctor, she said. Yeah, yes, I, I, I believe you're right. Zoe tried not to look smug, but failed. She was usually right about everything. She pointed to the screen. 
Oh, Doctor, they're studying the life cycle of stars. Look, all stars expand and explode, creating a nebula. Then gravity pulls the nebula material together to form new stars and planets. And the cycle begins again, Zoe finished. Thankfully, at that point, a door opened on the lower level. A group of about ten people filed in. They were all wearing cream-coloured overalls, and they were following a young man who waved an arm up at the rows of seats. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the largest lecture hall on the edge. It was on this very spot that our provost, Provost Curtis, outlined the seven principal stages of intellect. The young man looked up to where we were watching. Just arrived! He led the group to our level, puffing slightly as he climbed the slope to shake our hands. I'm Sebastian, tour guide for new arrivals. I must have a word with maintenance. Either they got the gravity set too high, or I'm getting old. You've missed the main academic areas, I'm afraid, but you're welcome to join us. We're about to go outside. The doctor introduced us and clapped his hands together. Outside? Oh, oh thank you, uh, uh, Sebastian. Yes, that would be most interesting. This way, ladies and gentlemen. Follow me. We all filed out back into the corridor, turning away from the TARDIS. Zoe was right about the corridor walls. They seemed to bend so that they connected with the doors to the big classrooms. Then I shivered. I didn't understand at the time, but I knew that something wasn't right. Uh, Is this wise, Doctor? We don't know anything about this place, and, well, I just feel that there's something wrong here. Have you noticed that there's no windows? There was nothing I could put my finger on. Just an uneasy feeling. The doctor, however, had that twinkle in his eyes that meant he was going to explore no matter what. Don't you understand, Jamie? We're going outside. That means beyond the area of breathable atmosphere, but beyond the stable gravity. There could be anything out there. The doctor's face folded into a grin and he shuffled with a few apologies through to the front of the tour group, Zoe and me following behind. Ah, Sebastian, might I ask, uh, this place, the edge, did you say, what exactly goes on here? What goes on at the edge, Doctor? Why, everything. This facility is at the cutting edge of research into anything you might care to examine. It's the galaxy's scientific hub of experimentation, theoretical breakthroughs and invention. I saw the Doctor and Zoe were impressed. This was just the sort of place that would interest them. (sighs) I could see myself stuck here for weeks. The doctor's eyes had sought out a spacious open area ahead of us. There was a huge metal door with the number three printed across it. Do you have uh, laboratories, Sebastian? Uh, You you mentioned uh, experimentation. All part of the tour, Doctor. You'll see the exterior of the labs from our viewing platform outside. Sebastian led us into cubicles to change into cream-coloured overalls so that we matched everyone else. Then he bustled around as each of the tour group were given a set of what he called gravity boots and a plastic dome to fit over our heads. As you should know, there is very little gravity outside and therefore no atmosphere. The boots, like the interior of this facility, induce a gravity in the wearer so that you'll be able to walk normally. The breathing dome fits into the collar of your overalls and contains a sound-activated communication relay. We'll be able to hear each other as well as being linked back here to the main base. The doctor stepped from his cubicle looking completely different out of his usual tailcoat. The pale overalls still managed to look baggy on him, though. I'd got into the overalls fine, but the boots were more difficult. I had my duck 
tucked into my knitted socks hidden under the overall's leg. The boots fitted over the top, but they had that many fastenings that I couldn't see what went where. Of course, the boots were no problem to Zoe. Here, Jamie, let me do that for you, she said. You don't want to go floating away, do you? <laughs> There's no chance of me floating away. The boots made my whole body feel heavy. We clomped over to where everyone was gathered by the huge metal door. Airlock 3. Sebastian instructed us to put on the breathing domes and check they were all secure. Follow me, ladies and gentlemen. We crowded into the airlock. The door behind us closed and the door in front of us opened. We shuffled forward, everyone gazing up at the sky. It was the same blue as a summer's day in the highlands, but dark too. Then my eyes began to pick out some details. We were looking up into the blackness of space, but the whole sky blazed with blue and purple clouds. It looked like an explosion, frozen and draped across the stars. Even Zoe was impressed. It's beautiful, she said. Yes, I... Uh... My word, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite so glorious. The Indigo Nebula, ladies and gentlemen. And we're about to see it in all its glory. Could everybody please keep to the plastic floor panels? That's right, sir, just follow the walkway. Uh, Doctor, I'm confused. Surely you saw the Nebula from the shuttle when you arrived? Ah, uh, uh, yes, uh, Sebastian. Uh, well, no, actually. Uh, we were sleeping. Uh, yes, uh, we were very tired, uh, weren't we, Zoe? Uh, oh, look, Sebastian, uh, are those asteroids? Yeah, that's right, Doctor, just like this one. The edge is an asteroid uh, floating through the Indigo Nebula. Obviously. I suppose you all slept through the shuttle's information briefing, too. Uh, yon asteroids, they look broken. Tumbling slowly through the glowing nebula were huge moon-like boulders... They glinted in the blue light like giant diamonds. The asteroids were rounded, but almost all of them had what looked like slices missing. They looked like gigantic crystal blue oranges with segments removed. As my eyes grew accustomed to the strange light, I could see loose segments floating past, catching the light like the cover of a moon. Sebastian hurried us on to join the main group, taking us to the edge of the plastic walkway. There was a rail to the left and the glassy surface of the asteroid beyond. All the asteroids are crystalline, formed from the accreted material of the nebula. They may look solid, but in parts they're as fragile as a snowflake. That's why we have to walk on this protective covering. Is that why there are so many broken fragments? The crystal formation has strata within it which divides each asteroid into eight segments. These strata are extremely brittle. Any collision or stress within an asteroid can cause segments to break free. In the case of this asteroid, two segments are missing. That's why we call it the edge. Sebastian led us to a rail at the end of the walkway. Beyond it, there was nothing. The asteroid simply stopped at an enormous cliff edge. Ahead of us, there was no horizon, just space and the bright purple blue of the nebula. The doctor grabbed the handrail and stared straight ahead. Oh, oh my word. Oh, oh my goodness. Look at it, Zoe. Jamie. 
tumbling through the remnants of an exploded star. Then can't you just feel the universe revolving around us? I held tight onto the railing too, but I was feeling more like the doctor's aunt. All that nothingness ahead and above made me feel dizzy. I looked down the sheer glassy edge of the cliff. Not so long ago I had flown in the brigadier's helichopper, but even that was nothing like this. The cliff was so high, it just kept going down and down to where a few buildings could just be seen, hazy through smoky blue trails from the nebula. I drew back, but the doctor and Zoe were leaning over and pointing. Ah, uh, Sebastian, this must be the viewing platform you mentioned earlier. That's right, Doctor. I told you you'd see the exterior of the laboratories, didn't I? Those buildings down there, at the core of the edge, are where all the innovative research takes place. All very secret. Access strictly controlled. Cutting-edge experimentation. I, uh, I don't suppose there's any chance of a tour of those laboratories, uh, eh, Sebastian? Back in the edge buildings, the doctor, Zoe and me found an area where we could get something to eat. We still wore our cream overalls, which seemed to be what everyone wore here. We had just ordered some sandwiches and three fruit juices when Sebastian, the tour guide, came over to our table. He said that he had asked Provost Curtis about the doctor's request to visit the laboratories. The doctor and Zoe were suddenly interested, but Sebastian placed three wee flat screens on the table and said there was a test. Zoe's eyes lit up. This was another chance for her to show off how clever she was, and she picked up one of the wee screens. Sebastian strode away, saying that the results would flash up in his office when we were done. No sooner had he turned around than Zoe was tapping at the screen. They're puzzles, Doctor. She stroked her finger across the screen. The first is about temperature curves, and look, there's one about relative dimensions. The Doctor reached for his screen. I leant back in my chair, waiting for the sandwiches. The doctor gave me an odd sort of smile. Uh, not your cup of tea, hey, Jamie? Our drinks hadn't arrived. Oh, oh. then I realised what he meant. Oh, you and Zoe go if you like. I'll stay here. It'll be more interesting than stuffy old laboratories. The doctor leant in close. Thank you, Jamie. I, I wouldn't want Zoe to go on her own. It was then that the waiter arrived. He placed our plates and glasses on the table, then just stood there looking at the screens. Excuse me, he said. I see you're taking the test for the core facility. I uh, might be able to help you with that. Zoe, of course, was outraged. You can't give us the answers. That would be cheating. I can imagine Zoe's horror if my test score was as good as hers. But the waiter simply placed a wee glass tube like a, a salt shaker on the table. Inside, at the bottom, were a few tiny crystals, like blue sugar. The doctor's eyes narrowed. Uh, what's this, then? Acumen, said the waiter. It's a medication. It promotes the formation of synaptic links in the brain. The doctor frowned at the tube. Acumen, yes, I've heard of it. Used very successfully in stroke cases and to slow down the progression of dementia. Take it away. The waiter didn't move. When taken by an otherwise healthy person, he said, it has the ability to boost the intelligence. Useful if, uh, for example, you were taking an important test uh, for a reasonable fee. The doctor stood. His voice was quiet, but it soon built up. I've asked you to take it away. 
Now, oh, do you want me to draw attention to what you're offering us? The waiter snatched up the glass tube and scuttled back to the kitchen like a surprise rabbit. The doctor sat down, fussily straightening his baggy overalls. He took a breath. Sorry about that, but, you know, it's really quite wrong to offer prescription treatments like that. Acumen does enhance the intellect, and that makes it one of the most valuable commodities in the universe. I wonder how much that waiter's reasonable fee would have been. Some pharmaceutical company somewhere is making a fortune. No one really knows where it comes from, but I I doubt that waiter came across it legally. He managed to smile at Zoe, and, uh, as you say, it uh, would be cheating. Zoe lay her wee screen on the table. I've finished anyway, she said. Perhaps you should hurry up, Doctor. The time taken may be a factor. The doctor fumbled for the screen. Oh, oh, now now I'm all flustered. Yes, uh, uh, question one. On the graph below, trace the the cooling curve. The doctor and Zoe had only been gone a few hours, and I was already bored. This edge place might be their idea of a good time, but to be honest, it was all a bit too clever for me. Of course, they had passed the test easily. Sebastian had come running over straight away to take them down in a lift to that laboratory area. I told them I wouldn't mind staying here by myself. There were evening talks in the halls, but I couldn't even understand the signs in the doors, let alone what was being said inside. I didn't have a TARDIS key, so I sat in the cafe area again. I could see the waiter from earlier. He was skulking in a corner. I wondered if he might be avoiding me after the doctor had sent him away. He took the tube of blue sugar from his pocket, frowning at the few crystals inside. He looked around as if to make sure nobody was watching. Then he turned and hurried down another corridor. Well, I hadn't anything else to do, so I got up and followed him. I hurried after the waiter, down another of those strange, zigzag walled, flexible corridors. No windows again. It sounds crazy, but the lack of windows suddenly bothered me. I felt closed in, and though I kept one eye on the waiter, I found myself looking around for a way out. It was the same feeling I'd had when we first landed, that something wasn't right. I couldn't explain it then, but now I realise what it was. I felt trapped. Trapped somehow in this corridor, or or this building, or on this asteroid. Perhaps I was being led into a trap. Was that it? I tried not to think about it, as ahead of me, the waiter disappeared through an open doorway, which he didn't bother to close behind him. I peered round into the room. I could see a large blank screen on the opposite wall. There was a desk and a rack of those plastic breathing domes. Their voices were muffled but I could hear the waiter talking to someone, demanding more acumen. The answer came from a voice I recognised, the guide Sebastian. He seemed irritated, saying that he'd have to speak with Provost Curtis. I recognised that name. Wasn't the Provost in charge of this place? Suddenly, the screen on the wall lit up as the waiter paced back and forth across the doorway. A man's face appeared on the screen. He looked old, about forty, thin-faced and serious, and his skin and hair were a shade of pale blue. I could hear his voice clearly, even out in the corridor. Sebastian, how convenient. I was just about to contact you. What is it you want? Ah, I see you with our friend the waiter. 
request for acumen, I assume? The answer is no. It's no good protesting. You've been selling acumen too close to home. Do I really have to explain? I don't want any authorities investigating this close to the source. They'll be down here crashing through the mine in no time. You have endangered my operation. Sebastian, kill him, will you? The waiter gasped and backed away. I couldn't believe it. Suddenly, Sebastian had a gun in his hand. I darted through the open door without thinking, but there was nothing I could do. The waiter lay twisted on the floor. Sebastian still held the gun. He was looking away from me towards the screen. So, quick as I could, I crouched down behind the rack of breathing domes. Provost Curtis was still talking. Now, Sebastian, the reason I was going to call you... Those two visitors you sent down, the doctor and the girl, they have the highest test scores I've seen. Very impressive. And theirs appears to be a natural intelligence. They both have a knowledge of stacked dimensions, which will be particularly useful once I've persuaded them to join my permanent staff. That means, of course, that their dim-witted friend, the boy, is now a loose end. Kill him too, would you? That was too much. I tried to reach for Sebastian's gun, thinking I'd take him by surprise. But I knocked over the stack of breathing domes. Provost Curtis was staring right at me out of the screen. Even the whites of his eyes were blue. I twisted round and out of the door as Sebastian swung the gun towards me, blasting a chunk out of the door frame. I ran around the curve of the corridor. Where, where could I go? I couldn't get in the TARDIS and Sebastian would soon catch me in one of those lecture halls. I could think of only one place. I ran into another corridor which led to airlock 3, then snatched up a breathing dome, clamping it over my head. How had everything gone wrong so quickly? I reached for some gravity boots and I pressed the control for the inner airlock door to open. I was in luck. I couldn't see Sebastian as the door closed behind me. I fumbled with the boots. They were too small, but I forced them onto my feet. I didn't have time for all the fangled fastenings, but the boots were working. I could feel that heavy sensation deep inside that the boots gave me. I slammed my hand against the outer door control. And I was outside. The evening sky was the same as during the day. I felt so small as the broken asteroids rolled through the glowing clouds of purple and blue exploding through space. I ran out into the open. That's when I realised I had nowhere to go. I had to stay on the plastic walkway because the asteroid surface was too weak to walk on. My only hope was that Sebastian hadn't seen me leave the building. And wasn't there a lift somewhere that led down to the doctor and Zoe? It looked like I was the only one outside. I ran to the deserted observation platform that looked down over the edge to the wee laboratory buildings. And that's when the feeling of being trapped hit me again. It was much stronger this time. I felt like walls were pressing against me and I was desperate to get out. It was so wrong. All I could see was the vast openness of the indigo nebula above, ahead and below me, yet I still felt closed in. I risked a look down over the edge, and I knew that the trapped feeling was coming from somewhere down there. I could see a shaft off to the right. The lift. 
I leant over the railing, trying to trace it as it disappeared down into the misty blue distance. Ah! I was lifted up and over the railing. I grabbed for the rail, but missed. I was falling. Then I jolted to a halt as my fingers caught on the platform edge. Sebastian was looking down at me through the plastic of the breathing dome as I hung there by the fingertips of my left hand. My legs suckled wildly, but there was nothing beneath me. Help me! Sebastian, please, I, I can't hold on much longer. Provost Curtis wants you dead. And you've made it so easy. Oh, ah. Oops. I seem to have stepped on your fingers. And it's such a long way down. Help me! Please! Falling, dropping like a stone, twisting and tumbling, I, I stupidly thrashed at the air, but there was nothing to hold on to. The glassy cliff face whizzed past on one side, the distant glowing clouds of the nebula on the other. I gritted my teeth, screwed up my eyes, and for an instant seemed to be floating. My eyes sprang open. I was still falling, fast, but there was no sensation of movement. No air rushing past me. No atmosphere, I remembered. No atmosphere. No atmosphere. The thought hammered at me. It wouldn't leave my head. The ground and the buildings far below me were clearer now. I knew I would slam into them, splatting across those flat roofs and snaking corridors. No atmosphere. Because, because there was no gravity. My gravity came from the special boots. I spun towards the cliff. It was speeding past even faster now. I kicked out. My boots were tight, but they weren't fastened. I prized the toe of one boot against the heel of the other, and the boot fell free, plummeting down ahead of me. But I was still falling. I shook my other boot till it felt loose, then kicked again. It slipped free and went speeding down after its partner. I was still moving, but not nearly so fast. The boots didn't pull me. I felt again like I was floating, 
free in space. But I'd been set tumbling towards the laboratory buildings, so I kept spinning over and over in that direction. It didn't feel like down anymore. Suddenly, those flat roofs were really close, speeding towards me, and... I'd hit one of those plastic walkways. But I was alive. Oh, I managed to stand practically weightless in the weak gravity. Oh, I leant against the wall, testing the movement in my legs. My left side would be a mass of welts, but nothing broken. The buildings here were the same as the top of the cliff. Separate rooms bound together by a network of flexible corridors. The doctor had said this was a standard design to link up modules of a base like this. I looked up at the impossible distance I'd fallen. I'd been lucky. Very lucky. Then, on the floor, I saw the ruin of one of my boots. The walkway splintered around it like a moon crater. That smashed boot could have been me. I moved around it. My rough knitted socks hardly connecting with the ground. I half walked, half floated around the outside of the buildings. From what Curtis had said, this is where the blue sugar stuff was mined. I expected to see tunnels into the cliffside, tracks and trucks. I remember Polly and Ben explaining trains and tracks to me such a long time ago, but there was nothing like that here. But there was something I recognised. An airlock door with a big number eight written on it. I drifted over to it, hoping the door worked the same way as the one at the top of the cliff. It did! Oh! Oh! Having the false gravity back brought a mass of aches down my bruised left side. But at last, I could take off the breathing dome. There were more twisting corridors with no windows. I added my dome to the rack at the airlock door. <sighs> now what? The doctor and Zoe were here somewhere, being forced to work for Provost Curtis, and I had to rescue them. There was a movement as a man crossed one of the corridors from right to left. I recognised his blue face. Provost Curtis. I couldn't believe my luck. I ran after him, quiet in my stocking feet, then turned left keeping a safe distance behind him. There were more double doors here too. Some were open. I could see into the laboratories that Zoe and the doctor had been so interested in. They were full of complicated equipment and a few other people. These others also had a pale blueness to their faces and hair. In one room, a woman looked up as I passed, straight into my eyes. I'd been spotted. But she showed no sign of surprise just turned back to her work. I crept along the side of the corridor as, ahead of me, Provost Curtis turned into a set of doors, leaving them wide open behind him. Now, Doctor and Zoe, have you had enough time to consider my proposal? The Doctor and Zoe! I'd found them! I peered around the door, hoping not to be seen. In a far corner... A pale blue man stood at a bank of dials, watching the centre of the room where the Doctor and Zoe were trapped in what looked like a man-sized box made of lightning. Provost Curtis had his back to me, but the Doctor could see me. 
and raised his eyebrows in silent surprise. I think the pale blue man saw me too, but like the woman earlier, he was too busy with his equipment to react. Ah, <coughs> promise, Curtis, I, uh, I, uh, that is we, uh, Zoe and I, uh, have decided that we do not want to work for you. So if you would uh, kindly release us and... Uh... I think you have an exaggerated concept of choice, Doctor. Ideally, you would choose to work here, but I'm equally happy to force your cooperation. Zoe had seen me too. You monster, let us go, she shouted to draw Curtis's attention. I pulled my duck from the top of my sock as I crept forward. I hadn't a plan except to threaten Curtis, get him to release my friends. I was just a step away from his back when he swept around. A hand thudded against my wrist, sending my knife skittering across the floor, and his foot kicked out, sending me tumbling. Curtis barely looked at me. Oh, dear. Did you really think I didn't know you were following me? Let them go. Curtis just turned away from me, as if I wasn't there. Now then, Doctor and Zoe, my proposition. You both performed phenomenally well at my entrance exam. You even show an awareness of stacked dimensions, which is intriguing. There is a chamber, quite close to here, which I'm certain will be of interest to you, if you were to stay. Imagine unlimited funding to enable your research into, uh, into, into anything, anything you wanted. And the acumen, too, to ensure that you excel. Don't listen to her, Doctor. You'll end up like these blue people, mindless, just working. I pointed at a man at the terminal who seemed to be controlling the lightning cage. Curtis turned back to me, as if surprised to find I was still there. Mindless? You could not be more wrong. Everyone here has an exceptional intellect and a passion for their studies. If my staff choose to ignore you, it is simply because they have more pressing concerns. Curtis noticed my socks as I got painfully to my feet, and a flicker of amusement twisted his blue lips. I wondered how you'd escaped Sebastian's attentions. Were the boot fastenings too tricky for you? Ironic that in this case, your lack of intelligence should have proved to be an advantage. I made to pick up my duck, but Curtis nodded a signal to the man in the corner. A wall of lightning rose up in front of me, moving closer. I was forced backwards, out into the corridor. Security, Security. we have an intruder in Sector 8. I require him to be expelled without a breathing dome. It looked like the lightning wall only worked inside the laboratory. It shimmered across the doorway, keeping me outside, in the corridor. I could already hear footsteps getting nearer from my left. I turned right and ran. I pushed open the next set of double doors on my right, closing them quietly behind me. Ah, I was safe. For the moment. And I was in the room next door to where the doctor and Zoe were being held. Perhaps I could get through to them from in here. But it wasn't a normal room. I was in a wee entrance hall with more doors at the other end. And suddenly, I felt trapped again. Once more, it didn't make sense. I knew the doors behind me were unlocked, but I felt like I couldn't get out. I still didn't ken what this feeling was, but it was even stronger this time. I felt as if the walls were pressing in on me. Oh, I needed to get out. I fairly ran to the other doors, pulling them open. I could hardly believe what I was seeing. This was obviously where the mining took place. 
where Provoscutus excavated that blue sugar from the asteroid. But the most amazing thing was the impossible size of this chamber. It was gigantic, stretching on and on. There was no way all this space could be just down the corridor from where the Doctor and Zoe were being held. This was like the inside of the TARDIS. I remember Curtis saying something about stacked dimensions. I was on a raised walkway which led around the outside of the chamber and into the distance. I had seen huge terminal buildings at Gatwick Airport, but those were tiny compared with this. Here and there steps led down from the walkway to the central area which was busy with machinery. It took me a full minute to realise what was down there. The edge, the asteroid, had two of its segments missing, and here they were. Not floating free through the Indigo Nebula, they lay here like beached whales, their shapes hardly recognisable, there'd been that much crystal hacked out of them. An electric truck passed underneath the walkway piled high with chunks of crystal. There was no driver, everything here seemed automatic. I followed the truck as best I could. This section of walkway ended in a doorway to some sort of control room and the truck trundled underneath. As it disappeared, it caught a shaft of light. The crystal glinted with a tinge of purple-blue. Then I realised Acumen wasn't just dug out from the asteroid. The whole of the edge was made of Acumen, the most valuable substance in the galaxy. And what about all the other asteroids, I thought? In fact, what about the whole nebula? Hadn't the doctor said the asteroids were collecting clumps of nebula stuff? Ah, I couldn't take in the scale of it all. Impressive, isn't it? I shot round to find Provost Curtis standing behind me. Your friends are being surprisingly obstinate. Still, I've broken others. I shall find their breaking points eventually. You leave them alone, or you'll have me to deal with. I tried to sound threatening as I staggered back in surprise. I had nowhere to go but into the control room. Curtis followed me in and closed the door, standing in front of it. Jamie, isn't it? I had dismissed you, Jamie, as a mere helper or companion to your much brighter friends. But I confess that you intrigue me. I backed away from him, between banks of monitors and equipment, all flashing with wee lights. You have a primitive loyalty to your friends which, despite my better judgement, I find quite fascinating. What have you done to them? A containment field for the moment. But I'll soon switch to something more persuasive. Does that shock you? I do hope so. Don't disappoint me, Jamie. I'm intrigued to know what you will try next. I thought you knew everything. (laughs) Not where you're concerned. You, Jamie, are new to me. An innovation. And I do like learning from something new. You came in here thinking you might find a way through to rescue your friends. It's all completely hopeless. And yet you keep trying. He gestured to a window that looked out into the massive mining operation. Take a look. Even you must realise that there is no way through to your friends from here. This is no ordinary room, is it? I knew this whole mine was like the TARDIS, but Curtis thought I was more stupid than that. Can't you see how impossibly large this chamber is? A stacked dimension. 
Or are you just too ignorant to register the anomaly? You're mining acumen. This is where that blue sugar comes from. Curtis glanced out of the window as an explosion lit up the inside of one of the edge segments. The light blazed for an instant through the blue crystals, lighting up the whole cavern. Curtis raised his blue eyebrows. I can hardly deny it. Don't worry, that was just a small controlled explosion to break up the ore. The edge asteroid is too brittle for major pyrotechnics. You're right, obviously. This is the secret source of the galaxy's acumen. A mine hidden away in a separate dimension among the edge laboratories. But I'm doing nothing wrong. My acumen treatments have improved the lives of countless people, repairing damaged synapses. It's a naturally occurring miracle cure, which I am merely harvesting. Aye, and you use it on your workers too. They're nearly as blue as you are. (laughs) Is that what you think? He held out his arm turning his hand as if to judge how blue it had become. I do confess to taking a few grains of acumen myself, but I am almost entirely philanthropic with my treatments. Of course, while the source remains a secret, I have a monopoly. I sell acumen to those who need it, and I have grown phenomenally rich and powerful on the profits. What about all these people with blue faces, then? You've made them clever so they'll work for you. That's what you want to do to the Doctor and Zoe. Have you really not realised? We are in the Indigo Nebula. The whole of this region of space is awash with acumen. Simply being within the nebula will eventually pigment the skin and increase the intellect. He pointed to the vast segments of the edge being mined outside the window. Acumen forms the asteroids. They grow like crystals in a solution. They then break into segments, each of which grows into a new asteroid, and so the cycle continues. Of course, I don't allow the visiting academics down here. I put up with them as a source of new workers, like your friends. I don't want too many people around who might realise the nebula's potential. What about that waiter, then? In any organisation, there will be some little man trying to take advantage. He won't be bothering me anymore. I had backed away from Curtis, as far as I could into the control room, and now he stepped towards me. I remembered how easily he had thrown me to the ground earlier. I'm glad that Sebastian failed to kill you, Jamie. You see, I need some way of persuading the Doctor and Zoe into working here. Imagine what minds like theirs could achieve in an environment like this. I can't threaten them, but I can threaten their friend. I'd come to a row of flickering terminals, my back pressed uncomfortably against a fire extinguisher on the wall. I couldn't back away any more. What do you want with Zoe and the Doctor, anyway? Isn't it obvious? It's been said that I'm the most intelligent man in the galaxy. Such an intellect comes at a price. When you know all that there is to know, the only thing you crave is something new. I mine the acumen here, but my real passion is this research centre. The Edge. I need the Doctor and Zoe. I need their research. I need to be fed new insights. Imagine the innovation they could achieve in a lifetime working here. And if I have to harm you to ensure their cooperation, so be it. I snatched up the fire extinguisher. Will you not let the Doctor and Zoe go? Curtis stopped. He stood there watching me again. But he said nothing. The extinguisher 
It was a long metal cylinder, heavy and solid. I swung it into the nearest terminal. Curtis just stood there. So I smashed the next one, too. This is fascinating, Jamie. I wondered what you tried next. Curtis didn't seem concerned at all. I guess the terminals were only displays. I needed to smash something more important. I hit the metal box covered in wee lights. The casing dented, then caved in. I hit it again and again. Outside the window, a crane lifting huge chunks of crystal stopped moving, its power dying with the lights on the smashed controls. Curtis wasn't concerned about the crane. He sat down on a desk chair, still watching me. This will not change my mind, Jamie. Your little rebellion is quite futile, but absolutely fascinating. All this emotional brute force, and with not a hope of success. Why do you do this? I move to the next stack of controls. You've got my friends trapped? Of course I'm going to help them. Even though it's impossible? Zoe and the Doctor are my friends. We've travelled together for far more time than I care to think of. We've seen her far worse than you. Ice Warrior. Yeti. Space Pirates. And everywhere we go, I've seen the writing of wrongs. That's what the Doctor does, you see. However impossible it might be. So that's what I'm doing for him. I'm sorry. I don't care that it's impossible. Because I'm doing what's right. As I slammed the extinguisher deeper into the equipment, Curtis held his acumen blue hands to his head. An expression of surprise dawning on his face. This is incredible. I can feel new synapses forming. I'm learning. From an imbecile like you, Jamie, I'm learning something new. Keep smashing, Jamie. Don't stop. Destroy the whole mine if you think it'll help. (laughs) This facility, the edge, it's all an amusement. The innovation and advancement I need to sustain my intellect. Smash it for me, Jamie. I'll just have it all rebuilt. And to an upgraded design, a new start will be a refreshing change. Out of the heart of my new edge will be your friends. I'll never let them go, Jamie. You failed. With a final swing of the extinguisher, I tore the front panel from another machine. My arms ached, my hands hurt, but I felt better for trying, even if it was all for nothing. I've seen the doctor struggle like this a dozen times, but somehow he always found a way. Then I saw it, nestling there inside the machinery. It looked like an egg timer, but with coils of wire around it, and a red light pulsing inside. Curtis had gone suddenly quiet. I reached into the exposed sockets, curling my fingers round this weak gizmo, pulling it taut against the wires that held it in place. Curtis stood. His blue face had turned pale. Don't be stupid, Jamie. You can't possibly know what that is. It looks to me like a dimensional stabiliser. It's this wee gizmo that allows this impossibly huge space to be inside your wee laboratory buildings. Now will you release my friends? Never. Then he rushed me. Looking back, it was probably not the wisest thing I'd done, but I didn't have time to think. I ripped the stabiliser free. It was like an earthquake. The mining chamber erupted to full size. What had I done? I imagined the rooms around it being pushed away. The roof of the mining chamber had been torn apart. The blue clouds of the glowing nebula blazed above the mine workings. 
and I found myself struggling for breath. Then the control room window shattered, and the doors burst outward as the air inside escaped into open space. I ran for the door and out into the raised walkway. Miraculously, I could see that the open doors to the corridor were still intact. I had to reach them. I grabbed Curtis by the arm as I passed, dragging him with me. Zoe had laughed at me once because I didn't know that sound needs air to travel through. Well, I knew it now. Despite all the chaos around us, there was silence. And that meant the air was gone. I was holding my breath, but I could feel the pressure inside me building as if I might explode. I ran along the walkway, my stocking feet feeling lighter all the time. Bits of the shattered roof fell all around, but it fell slowly like snow. We were outside now. Very little gravity and no air. And amazingly, the two great segments of the edge began to rise from the floor. Curtis's mouth was flapping like a fish. I dragged him along the walkway. He could hardly walk and I was becoming weaker too. I couldn't hold my breath anymore. I, I tried to breathe in, but there was nothing there, as if my throat was blocked. I struggled near to the corridor and I could feel the air rushing out of it, pushing us back. Aye, and I could hear it too, faintly. I risked another breath. Just enough air to keep me going. Curtis was limp now, but easy to drag without gravity. We reached the door. The air was rushing out that fast that I had to fight against it. And finally, I was through. And I pulled Curtis after me. I pushed at the doors. The wind caught them and slammed them shut. Curtis's blue eyes flickered back to life as he began to breathe again. He held a hand to his head and stared at me. I can feel synapses breaking. How can that be? There's no logic to you, Jamie. I don't understand why you would save me. The corridor was bent wildly out of shape, but miraculously, it seemed intact. Curtis managed to stand. We clambered along to the room next door, and as we reached it, two figures staggered out. Jamie! Doctor! Zoe! We were just... Zoe gave me the biggest hug ever. And I'd already had the wind knocked out of me. Oh, Jamie, she cried. I was so worried about you. What's going on? Then she noticed Curtis and scowled at him. And what's he doing here? I, uh... I may have damaged the secret acumen mining chamber. Oh, so that's what it was. Goodness me, I, it felt like an earthquake. The doctor waved his baggy overall sleeves back into the room. That electrical barrier failed, though the blue man in there seems intent on repairing it. He too scowled at Curtis. Uh, Time to leave, I think. That's when things got worse. It was like another earthquake. The twisted corridor was shaking. I didn't think the buildings would stand much more. It's the edge. The asteroid's too brittle to stand this treatment. I think a third segment has been shaken loose. It's detaching. Now he... You mean this segment? The one these laboratories are built on? We have to get out of here, quick! Airlock 8 is this way! I saw the man with the pale blue face trying to stand upright as the ground shook. He was still fixing his electrical barrier thing. Leave that! We'd better get out of here! The man looked up. He'd heard me right enough, but he still tried to save his work. Leave him. 
Leave all of them. They're too dedicated to their research. You'll never persuade them. I, I think he's right, Jamie. I, if we can get away, then we can raise the alarm to help anyone left behind. Now, <coughs> where's this exit uh, thing? I led them to a run towards the airlock door. We all grabbed breathing domes and Zoe reached for the gravity boots. No boots, Zoe. We'll be faster without them. We all entered the airlock, fitting the domes over our heads, and cut to slam his blue fist on the close button. Quickly! The segment's practically free. We'll end up floating through the nebula. The door had stuck, partly open. There was just room for us to squeeze out one at a time. The wall's cracked. Look! The door could fall at any moment. Curtis hung back as, carefully, we squeezed through the gap. Zoe went first, then the doctor, and then me. The blue of the nebula was blinding for a moment. Then I pointed towards the lift shaft that rose up the vast glassy cliff face. Curtis was the last to squeeze past the damaged door as the doctor helped Zoe, half running, half floating, towards the shaft. I could see the ground shifting against the wall of the cliff. Curtis was right. This whole segment was moving. I turned back. The airlock door had been shaken from the wall and fallen. There was no sign of Curtis. I leapt back to the fallen door. It lay on an angle. Help me! Curtis! The doctor had heard us and was hurrying back to help. I tried to lift the fallen door. It was about two feet thick and solid metal. Help me, Doctor. The gravity's weak. The door was just too heavy. Even with the Doctor's help, we couldn't budge an inch. I crawled to the widest gap and could just see Cutters' face behind a wide crack in his breathing dome. His face twisted awkwardly till his eyes met mine. I know there's no hope, Jamie. I'm far from stupid. It's impossible. Hey, nothing's impossible. Remember? Why would you help me, Jamie? After all that I've done. Because it would be wrong not to. Is that no right, Doctor? I felt the Doctor's hand on my shoulder. Yeah, yes, Jamie, you're right. But I, I, I fear there's nothing we can do in time. Curtis had closed his eyes. as you thought. I, uh, I think your brain is rejecting things you had thought were true or important. You mean he's unlearning, uh, re-evaluating, uh, Jamie. He hasn't met anyone like you before. The airlock door shifted, even lower. Curtis! Provost Curtis! There was no reply. The doctor's hand now gripped my shoulder and he pulled me away. Easy in the reduced gravity. Zoe was waiting at the lift shaft, which towered above us, hugging the cliff face. She was already a few rungs up the service ladder, which was bolted to the outside. The doctor and me were running and, and floating as the segment shifted again. With a tremendous cracking, the ground was detached from the main asteroid and lifting away. Zoe's expression was horrified as we rose above her for a moment. Then, the segment tipped taking us nearer to the shaft. We both jumped for the ladder, 
just as the segment twisted again, floating freely away into space. Uh, uh, just in time. We caught the ladder a few rungs higher than Zoe. She soon caught up with us. Half floating, she pulled herself up, hand over hand. As we climbed, I could hear the doctor and Zoe breathing. But nothing now from Curtis. And nothing from the laboratory base. All was silent as the gigantic segment floated gracefully from the edge. Finally, we stood on the viewing platform at the top of the cliff, looking out at the shining nebula. Zoe waved a small hand at the vastness. It's still beautiful, she said. Floating close by were the three segments of the edge asteroid. Two were pitted and broken where they'd been mined. The third was a a wee bit splintered at the edges but whole. And the laboratory buildings still clung to one surface as it floated around its two battered fellows. Doctor, yon pale blue people, will they be all right? Most of the base seem to be airtight, Jamie. Let's hope they had the sense to stay in those areas. As soon as we're back, we'll get the authorities to send out their shuttles as rescue ships. Aye, and and, and while we're at it, we'll tell them about the guide Sebastian and his involvement with Acumen production. Ah, yes, Acumen. I think Curtis's little empire will collapse completely now that his secret source has been discovered. And with a whole nebula alive with the stuff, the ridiculous cost of treatment should plummet. I looked down at the great drop of the edge. It was here that I'd felt that sense of being trapped, and I realised now that the feeling had gone. My eyes were drawn up into the blazing blue sky where the three segments of the edge floated, like ducklings around their mother. I couldn't help thinking of how the quake had trapped Curtis, but not us, and how the segment had lifted the doctor and me towards the ladder. Uh, you're not asteroids. I mean of argument, right? Yes, Jamie. And acumen is a a form of intelligence. I explained about the trapped feeling and how strong it had been in the mining chamber. I looked up again at the pitted segments. Could they have been talking to me, Doctor? Are they alive? Lattice of crystalline synapses? Oh, that's fascinating. The Doctor practically danced a jig in his excitement. Oh, (laughs) Jamie, you know, I, I think you could be right. These asteroids are on the edge of sentience. Ah, That's incredible. They were trapped, and you were able to sense their feelings, whereas everyone else here, well, their minds were too full to hear their cries. What you mean is, my mind's empty compared with yours and Zoe's. I managed a small smile. I was used to being treated as the least intelligent of the TARDIS crew. Zoe, however, half floated over to nestle against me. That's absolutely not true, Jamie McCrimmon, she said. Your mind's not empty. That's a mistake Provost Curtis made. He thought that intelligence was purely academic. And, I admit, I sometimes act that way too. I thought she was going to hug me again, but she just looked at me apologetically. I'm sorry. The doctor clasped his hands together and gave me that look as if he were peering over a pair of spectacles he'd forgotten to put on. I think it was only at the end that Curtis realised there's value in loyalty uh, and friendship, in bravery and a strong arm. 
for all his intelligence, he still had a lot to learn. He sighed, stared out at the vast nebula, its bright clouds and asteroids. You said there was something wrong here, Jamie, when we first landed. I should have trusted your instinct right at the beginning. Well done, Jamie. You rescued us. You rescued the trapped segments. You even tried to rescue Curtis. Oh, we've been through some adventures, you and I, haven't we? And I may not have said it before, but I, I'm very proud of you, Jamie. I'm proud of how much you've learned and how much you've taught us in return. I couldn't help grinning back at him. Aye, we made quite a team. The Doctor and Jamie, and, and Zoe too. We linked arms and half floated back towards the main edge buildings. And in the sky... The curve of the asteroid segments caught the light, smiling down at the three of us. Hello, I'm Lisa Bowerman, and I'm directing. And hello, I'm Rob Nisbet, and I wrote this thing. Uh, is this wise, Doctor? We don't know anything about this place, and, well, I just feel that there's something wrong here. Have you noticed that there's no windows? It all started with a suggestion for a Jamie story, and it went through various stages and several false starts and sort of cul-de-sacs. There was one story which was just far too complicated. It was Jamie meeting his descendants in the Scottish Highlands in a whiskey distillery. Um, it involved a time paradox. It was just very un-Second Doctor era. It was just too complicated. And eventually that got dropped. And then there was another suggestion of a, a Jamie story on a planet of uh, electrical storms, basically. And that didn't work either. And <laughs> so I went back to Ian's original suggestion of Jamie and a clever villain. And I just wondered about the cleverness part. How was this villain clever? And that's where Acumen came into it. Hopefully you've just listened to the story so you know <laughs> the relevance of that. And that led on to the Indigo Nebula, where the Acumen came from. And the story sort of developed from there. So the cleverness became part of the story. And that's how it developed. Fraser Hines playing Jamie and the Second Doctor. It's a space-age one, set in, on this huge asteroid where they're sort of uh, mining it. And um, for me, it's rather good because it's, it's sort of a more mature Jamie, whereas on the early ones uh, with Polly and Ben, he was still very sort of youngish and, and looking around a bit sort of um, bright-eyed and in wonderment. But this one, he knows kind of what he's doing and uh, stands up to the villain. You leave that doctor alone, you have me to answer to. So it's been great sort of for me, the progression of um, sort of a young Jamie to the 
to this one. And I was outside. The evening sky was the same as during the day. I felt so small as the broken asteroids rolled through the glowing clouds of purple and blue exploding through space. I ran out into the open. That's when I realised I had nowhere to go. That slot in the the, the four stories in the box set uh, was always going to be a kind of final... um, really sort of show us how far Jamie's come through his time with the Doctor and, and how much the time with the Doctor has changed him and indeed actually has kind of had an effect on the Doctor and, and the other people who've travelled with him. So uh, I really wanted that front and centre. By the time that I get it as a director, it's gone through several stages of script editing and honing and things like that. Um, I mean, as far as I'm concerned... Uh, as far as the director is concerned, you look at the other character that is, especially in, in relation to the Companion Chronicles, is usually just one other actor. Obviously, in this range, uh, in this box set, we've had quite a few d- double companion stories. But um, I knew that we needed somebody who could do both the voice of Sebastian, uh, the guide, and, of course, uh, uh, the provost. And uh, I'd worked with Rob uh, Whitelock before so uh, funnily enough he was the first person who sprung to mind so in, in terms of scratching my head as to you know who, who was casting it uh, who, who should be cast um, I had a fairly clear picture I also think it's a very clear story you know where you are there's nothing too complicated about it it's a very straightforward linear story there's no jumping backwards and forwards and um, that to me is is just good storytelling I think within the context of the plot I like the implications of um, using a planet's uh, resources but not necessarily it being very good for the planet itself and and you know at what point do you stop at what point do we think is in intelligence is as important in terms of how a society works um, obviously the provost has other ideas than most of us <laughs> yes. had, you know. hello uh, I'm Rob Whitelock and I'm playing Sebastian and provost Curtis help me Sebastian, please, I, I can't hold on much longer. Provost Curtis wants you dead. And you've made it so easy. Oh, ah. Oops. I seem to have stepped on your fingers. And it's such a long way down. There is a connection uh, between me and <laughs> and the and the Patrick Troughton era in that uh, I played Marla in The Bells of St John. And in that episode... Uh, right at the end, you see that the it was the great intelligence who who is driving uh, the Celia Celia Emery's character in that. Um, the great intelligence was the bad guy in that, and that harks back to the Patrick Troughton era. That last episode, we're able to kind of just sideline almost everyone and just put Fraser and Robert front and center, and it's quite sort of combative. And I, I really love the message that. that writer Rod Nisbet kind of finds at the end in that you know even when the circumstances are against you and the chips are down and everything and every and logic and, and reason is saying no you know give up you're hopeless you know that someone who's spent time with the doctor will say actually no it, it's never hopeless and I can I can counter that and I've always loved that I mean for me the message of Doctor Who if there is one is always that optimism and then that finding something to like, finding some hope even in the worst of situations. I've, I've, I think yeah, it's something that grounds Doctor Who very firmly in a kind of fantasy series rather than any sort of real world drama. Is that you know that can happen and you know against the worst of circumstances you can still win through and have hope and believe. And 
and I absolutely adore that. So it, it was great to have that kind of final bit with, with someone challenging Jamie and saying, you know, it's hopeless, why are you bothering? And he's kind of saying, well, the Doctor would and I will too. He's not based on a particular person, but I, I went to see Fraser Hines in an Agatha Christie story. He came to Brighton, which is near my yeah. hometown. And I went to see him there. And not the character that he played, but a character of the judge in the story. He was um, had a very deep voice, very commanding. And that's what I thought Curtis would sound like. I'm very pleased with what Rob's done. I think he's an excellent Curtis. Yeah. But when I wrote it, I had in mind this judge from the Agatha Christie story, and then there were none. The, the Sebastian character I found a lot trickier than Provost Curtis, actually, uh, because I couldn't quite think of anybody to base him on. <laughs> uh, and so I, I sort of I did it technically instead. I did it technically around the voice and, um, and, and went for the kind of went for a sort of lightness, uh, a lightness and psychopathy <laughs> instead. Uh, which I which I hope comes through. Um, Provost Curtis, uh, I'll be honest, I had a lot more fun with, and that's because I, I was able to base it on somebody. And what I based it on, I don't know if I want to tell you, but I, you know, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. What the hell? I'll give away my trade secrets. Uh, I based it on the governor from the prison in Scum. He was the guy that came to mind immediately when I read Provost Curtis's stuff. Uh, the 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 interesting thing about this story and this character is that Provost Curtis is a an intellectual heavyweight. Um, he's a, a superstar of academic thought. That's what he is, uh, and he's faced with Jamie, who is not <laughs> any of those things. He's not an intellectual heavyweight. Uh, what what he is is uh, what he has is an, a huge amount of emotional intelligence. Uh, which Provost Curtis does not have. And so what we see is this really interesting dichotomy, the polarity between emotional intelligence and academic intelligence and both their strengths and weaknesses. Jamie, isn't it? I had dismissed you, Jamie, as a mere helper or companion to your much brighter friends. But I confess that you intrigue me. I backed away from him, between banks of monitors and equipment, all flashing with wee lights. You have a primitive loyalty to your friends, which, despite my better judgment, I find quite fascinating. My first memory of Doctor Who at all is from uh, The Mind Robber. It was the Medusa statue coming to life and the snake starting to move in her hair. <laughs> and it sort of grew on me from that. So that's my first memory was of a second Doctor story. And I became a fan and watched it ever since. My doctor was Tom Baker, really. Uh, that he was the he was the guy that I grew up watching, uh, and that and then uh, that dovetailed into Peter Davison as well. Uh, so uh, I knew of Patrick Troughton, but mostly I didn't know of him through uh, through Doctor Who. Uh, I knew of him because one of the first things that I ever saw that had a, a massive effect on me was uh, the BBC's Treasure Island that they made in 1977. Uh, and the the next thing was the Box of Delights, which was, I think is 1988. No, hang on. No, it was before then, wasn't it? It was about 83, 83, 84. And he, he's an amazing character in that as well. He's just such a, a brilliant, proper, old-school British character actor. Leave him. Leave all of them. They're too dedicated to their research. You'll never persuade them. I, I think he's, he's right, Jamie. Uh, if we can get away, then we can raise the alarm to help anyone left behind. Now, <coughs> where's this exit uh, thing? I led them to a run towards the airlock door. We all grabbed breathing domes and Zoe reached for the gravity boots. 
It was still happy, uh, in even the war games was still very, very happy. And I think it was only the last week of rehearsal I go leading into the studio that we knew, you know, rehearsing the scenes where, goodbye, Doctor, are you sure you will remember me? And that's when it hit. Up until then, we did all the filming first uh, at Brighton or whatever. So it was still the, the old gang fooling around and having a good time. But it was, I think it was the, the last week when we suddenly went, oh... This is really an end of an era. And, and as I said, because I've always said, none of us wanted to go. We wanted to stay, uh, but we're having such good fun, a few episodes, summer holiday, a few episodes, Christmas, few, you know, it was, it was never hard work. And people have said, oh, wasn't it hard work? Was Patrick irritable? No, nope. we had great time. And I always say we'd still be there now. It's been, it's been great. It's been a, a joy to actually do this set. And it's just been wonderful working with Fraser and... Um I think it's lovely to actually celebrate such a strong character in Doctor Who and, and someone who I think in more recent times has been... It's not forgotten as such, but it's kind of... Whenever you get a list of the companions, it always tends to be the female ones who are now front and centre. And, um, I mean, Jamie was there really early on doing stuff that even now, you know, it's it's taken a while to have characters who are with the Doctor that long and, and make that much of an impact. Oh, we've been through some adventures, you and I, haven't we? And I may not have said it before, but I... I couldn't help grinning back at him. Aye. We made quite a team. Uh, I was doing a play in Cardiff and and I had a friend who worked at the BBC. I said, you've, you've got to get me to, to meet the incumbent doctor. Everybody, every other companion, Janet Fielding, um, they've all met and hugged the the resident doctor or the circle. And they said, well, we'll see if we can work it out. And then I got a phone call. Yeah. Next Tuesday, when you're in Cardiff, you know, come and see Peter. He's dying to meet you. And you always hear this, you know, someone is dying to meet you. And you meet them and go, hello, how are you? Mm, nice to see you now. I must go. I'm working. Uh, and he was great. He was really a, a lovely guy, a wonderful chat. And he did a scene. And then at the end of the scene, he turned to the crews and he pointed to me and said, if it wasn't for this guy and his doctor, we wouldn't be here working today. And that's so lovely for a star of a show to, to pass the, the baton, so to speak, to one of the classic people. And we were talking and laughing, and he said, uh, we ought to try and get you back. And Edward Russell said, oh, you, you can't, you, he's already been back in 1984. So, well, that's 30 years ago. He said, let's make it every 30 years. So I have this idea, it'd be wonderful, if um, he, go, he meets an old Highlander in a, in a bothy, and their eyes meet, and they realise it's him and the Doctor, and do you find you coming on a, a journey and... Jamie off he, off he goes and shaves and gets cleaned up and everything and we have an adventure and then he says at the very end well Jamie um, do you want to come and join me again and Jamie goes oh, I'm a bit too old for all this doctor I just I'd rather go back to my wife and family so he goes back to his wife and family and she says where have you been and he's been probably away 10 minutes in actual time oh just looking after the cattle she said oh, why have you had a haircut and a shave uh, 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 cue music you know just one story that's all I need just one story Mr. Moffat. Oh, 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 thank goodness. Uh, oh, it's you. I, I thought for a moment it was... Uh, well, uh, let's just sit down, down for a moment. Uh, I, I'm glad I, I met you, as a matter of fact. Um, there's something I, I want to tell you. Uh, when we start out on our next adventures, uh, uh, Jamie, Polly, Ben, um, Victoria, Zoe and I, uh, we, uh, <clears throat> we visit new places. Uh, we also meet some new enemies. Uh, 
There's the evil Provost Curtis, uh, ruling a place called the Edge. Uh, there's the monstrous Integral. And there are horrible figures waiting for a, a special train in 1920. It's all just a little bit more frightening than last time. So <clears throat> I, I want to warn you that if your, your mummy or, or daddy are scared, you, you just get them to hold your hand. Oh, here we go again. Uh, i better go. See you soon. I hope. Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, The Second Doctor, Volume 1, available now. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who. The Companion Chronicles, Volume 1, Box Set. Ian, Barbara, this is Vicky. I'm afraid things aren't going to plan. The logic traps failed, and they've got me and the Doctor already. Where are they? Where are the Doctor and Franklin? The fire in the sky. It consumed them. There's no time to lose. You must run. There must be a way to block the Butcher's signals. The nanomachines aren't autonomous. He's controlling them. With the right equipment, I think I could rewrite the machine's programming, force them to ignore all subsequent external commands. You want equipment? You've come to the right place. You are on the colony planet Rua. Rua? This information is taken directly from the Encyclopedia Universica. All rights reserved. I have to rescue you. From this day forward, later, straight after these messages. Hatred, fear, and catharsis among the Wimbrels. But what about really clean? Shame, Shame arrogance, greed, contempt, fear. I demand it's grown too strong. I can't hold it back. Doctor, I flipped the switch and I cut the signal. Does that stop this thing, or does it send it back with you to Earth? I'm going to flick it anyway. Big Finish. We love stories.